what a wonderful worship service we've had so far. Appreciate our brother leading us in those great songs, our time around the table together, being able to come before the Father through the prayer of Dave this morning, just beautiful. I want to remind us what we've been doing over the last uh, couple of weeks. We have been looking into this, trying to answer this question. And that is, why is it that people can have the same information and see things so differently? We have been investigating why that happens. And we've said that that's because people have different views of the world. That we all see things and hear things through the filter of our beliefs and our experiences. And this causes us to see things differently, even though we've got the same information. For example, we saw how the gospel, the same gospel, went to one town and the people picked up stones to kill them. And the same gospel went to the next town and the people tried to worship those who spoke it as gods. I mean, how can you have two different views of the gospel than that? The gospel is worthy of stoning or pronouncing people as gods. We saw then that people have different views of Jesus because of their worldview. Some people in John chapter 6, we saw last week, see Jesus as somebody to leave. You're nobody to follow him. He's offensive to me. They left him. Some people saw Jesus as somebody to use for their own personal benefit. And other people saw Jesus as the Holy One of God that they wouldn't leave that they would do nothing but follow. And so we've seen that our worldview causes us to see the gospel differently, to see Jesus differently. And today, I want us to think about how our worldview changes the way that we see ourselves. Do we ask ourselves, who am I? Uh, to illustrate how we can have different views of ourselves, I wanted to tell you about a, a short video that I saw about a young man who was climbing this rock wall. And he'd gotten up a pretty good distance, and he looked over to the camera and he proclaimed, I am Spider-Man. And then he looks to the, set, to the left, and there's a, another rock wall about 10 feet away. And he takes with all of his might this big leap to go from one to the other. And of course, he gets about a foot away, and gravity takes hold, and he goes straight to the ground. There is a young man who for a moment thought that he was Spider-Man, but his view of himself being totally wrong ends up being more hurtful than anything. I don't want to suggest that a lot of us are that way when it comes to our worldview of ourselves. How we understand ourselves is immensely important. So let's ask this question, who am I? Uh, one reason this is an important question is because we are with ourselves every day. We look at ourselves, talk to ourselves, sometimes even like ourselves. Other times we want to run away from ourselves but we just tend to follow. We seem to be this omnipresent force in our life. Wherever we are, there we are. And so it's really important for us to have a good, clear understanding of who we are. So maybe even more fundamental question than this, who am I, is how can I have an accurate understanding of who I am? 
And that answer depends upon our view of the world. For example, many people are going to say, well, who am I? I am someone whose clicker doesn't work. That's who I am. How about it, brother? There we go. Thank you. I'll do this and we'll click. A lot of people live by the view that I am who I say I am. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I'm the one who knows me the best. And so I should define who I am. So no one better, no one knows me better than myself, right? Well, I'm not so sure about that. We're all pretty good at self-deception. In fact, there's a vivid point made in Jeremiah chapter 17 about how everyone has a choice with which they view themselves. First, he says in Jeremiah 17 verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart is turned away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places, in the wilderness, in the uninhabited salt land. So that's one way to view yourself, by trusting in yourself. But there's another way of viewing yourself. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust, in, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots in the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and, it is, not, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for he does not cease to bear fruit. Wow, if you've got a choice like that, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose this drought-like life or are you going to choose a fruitful life? It makes really good sense to not trust in your view of yourself, trust in the Lord's view of who you are. So why don't we do that? Because the next verse says, the Lord is deceitful. I'm going to have to pay Greg a lot more after this is over with today. You get double pay for today. Wait, you think it's out? Oh, look, now it's working. If you'll just stand there during our worship. Thanks for thinking of that, Thomas. It is, this is the reason why we don't see things rightly. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The reason we don't see ourselves very clearly is because our hearts are deceitful. Have you ever seen a picture of yourself or heard a recording of yourself and thought, who's that? That's just the tip of the iceberg of how deceived we are. The other day, Jack asked me, he said, Dad, is it true that, Dad, that Mom knows you better than you know yourself? And I said, that's true. She knows me better than I know myself. When it comes to trying to define ourselves, we're a little bit like taking a picture of a flower. Have you ever done that? You got real close to the flower and you took a picture and you looked at it and it was all fuzzy because you got too close to it. A lot of us are like that when it comes to defining who we are. We are just too close to see things clearly. And so when we define ourselves, we end up painting an inaccurate caricature of who we are. The problem is, is that a lot of us are like that young man on the wall 
we think that we're smarter and stronger than we really are. And as a result, we make, we make decisions in life that fall flat on our face. Others of us have another problem. We view ourselves as smarter and stronger than we really are. And we find out when life comes upon us that we are indeed weak and inadequate. So I would suggest that defining ourselves, seeing who we are by who we say we are, is not the best approach. And yet we live in a culture that says, don't let anyone or anything get in the way of you being you. You define who you want to be, and you chase what you think you are, and that's just the highest peak of being a human. It sounds a little bit more like the book of Judges that says everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Ah, they defined who they were. And how did that turn out? It turned out like the sinful chaos of the book of Judges. Well, then there's another approach. As tempting as it is to define ourselves, I think that most of us, though, fall into the second category, and that is when we define who we are, we are who others say I am. Others define who I am. My place in the world is defined on things that are outside of myself, what other people think about me. And so biologically, some people are going to say that you are defined by your DNA. I was reading this week about a man who was the son of a serial killer. How would you like to live the rest of your life with that? And he spent all of this time wondering, is that in my DNA or not? And some people think that's what defines you. Biologically, you're defined by your DNA. Others say, no, what you're defined by is psychologically, you are the product of your environment. You are the product of the things that have happened to you. But is that the whole story of who we are? Some people define themselves socially, where they are in the pecking order of life. And we all have this challenge of being engaged in that. We all do this pecking order. It's a very fleshly, worldly thing to do where it says, I define myself based upon how I relate to you. If I'm taller than you are, shorter than you are, or better looking than you are, older or younger or married or single, all our differences we throw out there and we use it to peck each other to death, finding our place of where we fit and that's who I am. I am where I find my place in the pecking order. And that means that I can look down upon somebody else who's not at the same place that I am. And this approach works really well as long as you find enough people that you deem to be inferior to you. And yet the comparison game has no winners. Our self-image at some point quickly withers away when we find somebody in our area of pecking that is better than we are. The church in Corinth had a problem with this. They compared themselves to one another who had more gifts, who was more visible, who could speak in tongues, who could give words of prophecy. And what Paul said to them is, when you measure yourself by yourself, when you compare yourself among yourself, you are simply not being wise. The problem with viewing ourselves this way 
of defining ourselves by how the, our culture or the world sees us is that it can tend to lead to arrogance. If we can just find one person that doesn't have what I've got, then I can feel superior. But it can also lead, this comparison game most often leads, to feelings of bitterness and resentment and envy because somebody else has what I really, really want. And so if they're better looking or wealthier or younger or older or married or single, and if you have it and I don't have it, I'm angry at you and I'm envious of you. Why? Because I don't measure up to what others say makes a person significant. So there are two major ways people view themselves. They define themselves or they allow their culture to define them. But there's another way in which we can answer this question, who am I? And that is to allow God to define who we are. And how he sees us, of course, is more clear. He is the one who created our minds and our body. He is the one who knows the number of hairs on our head. He's the one who knows the thought and intent of our heart. He knows us thoroughly and completely. So what does he have to say? That's of significance. In Psalm 139, it says in verse 1, let me read. Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in from behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. I cannot attain it. What you know about me is way beyond what I can know about me. It's way beyond what others might know about me. And so the question I want us to think about just briefly this morning is how does God see us? If how we see ourselves is a result of our worldview, do we take this idea, well, I get to define who I am? Or do, like most people, define themselves based upon how others view who we are? Or are we going to be like the Bible teaches, to see ourselves as God sees us? Let's see how God sees us in his word. And what the Bible says, first of all, is that God sees us as appalling, rebellious sinners. It's not a very flattering picture, is it? That's how God sees us, all of us, is appalling, rebellious sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one, both Old Testament and New Testament teach. The apostle summarizes the humanity, both unbelievers and believers, both Jews and Gentiles. He comes to this great summation of that as he looks at all humanity and he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's who we are. God knows who we are. Now we may recoil at that. But I believe in our private moments, we know better. We know the bitterness that we've harbored in our hearts. We know the harm we've inflicted with our actions and with our words. 
And we know how we have treated God with indifference and sometimes even with disobedience. That's who we are. We are rebellious, appalling sinners. And God knows every bit of that. I tell, I forget what I had for dinner yesterday. I'm really bad at that. We'll go out to eat, and I'll, the place will make me sick. And three weeks later, I'm saying, Jennifer, hey, why don't we go to eat at this place? She said, what is your problem? Don't you remember what happened there? Well, that's how we are about our sins. We quickly forget them. And yet, as the Hebrew writer said, we are no naked and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He knows every sin we've ever done. And the problem with God's wrath about sin is that it always beckons God's wrath. Sin in our life is not a neutral thing. Sin always brings pain and death. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. The biblical record teaches us that humanity is made up of two things. Humans are made up of a body, and we are made up of a spirit. And God in creation created humanity by creating a body. And then in that body, He placed a spirit in which it was made in His image, with which He could have eternal fellowship. But sin entered the world, and it ruined both body and spirit. And our bodies that encounter this decay and this destiny to death that they are on are indications of the result of sin in our lives. God did not intend for humanity to live in such a body that we're living in. But every ache and pain, every suffering and sorrow, every tear, every grief, death, reminds us that sin has destroyed the body. But so has it destroyed the mind, the spirit of man. So that we are twisted in our thinking, corrupted in our understanding, ignorant of reality. Every one of us is blind to the things that we ought to know and the things that we ought to do and the things we ought to glory. And all of that, just as much as the body, sin has ruined and corrupted within us. And it is the body and the spirit that needs to be regenerated. It needs to be saved. And the spirit is saved when it comes into the regeneration, the new birth of the resurrection into new life that happens when we're baptized in Jesus Christ. We have in spirit been made anew. And the body, that spirit, by the way, having been made new, is then continuing to be transformed into the image of likeness of God from little to little, from glory to glory, until we see Him as He is, and we will be pure as He is pure. That's the destiny of the spirit. But the destiny of the body is the same. That while these bodies continue to decay and be diseased and be hurt, God has a day in which the spirit and uh, excuse me in which the creation groans it's longing for you hear it Ugh, it's not like it ought to be and one day these bodies are going to be resurrected into a glorious 
new body that is going to be like his body. And we will be a body, spirit, that has been purified as God intended for us to be from the very beginning. Until that time, we live in this condition of struggling with sin. And sin is not a neutral thing in our lives. It's like that flu virus. You know, you get that flu virus. It's stuck in the back of your throat. Is it content to be inert? To just sit there and do nothing? That little flu virus stuck in the back of your throat calls upon the whole resources of your body to make you sick. And that's what sin does in our life. Sin is not inert. It isn't inactive. It is constantly calling upon the resources of mind and body to corrupt us. And the problem with this is that all sin is the object of God's wrath. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, listen. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Present tense. God's wrath is now being poured out. Sin hurts. God made it that way. But in addition to that, Paul in Romans chapter 5 talks about that being the same state, same condition of the religious. He says in in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, talking about the religious Jew, he says, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to their deeds. So here's who we are. We are appalling, rebellious sinners. And our sin calls out for presently and ultimately future for the righteous judgment of God's wrath against sin. Because God did not create bodies and spirits to live in sin. What a horrible picture. That's why He thrust humanity out of the garden. Why take hold of the tree of life and live in that corruption for eternity? No! Out! Until I make this right. Until I offer you a way for the rebellious sin to be forgiven and the spirit cleansed and the body restored. And I let you back in. But the message of the Bible is that all of us are appalling, wretched, rebellious sinners. And I wouldn't want anybody to be misled. If you're outside of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that God has offered through Him, that's where you stay. That's where you're at. That's who you are. And if you're a child of God, living outside of the will of God, rebelliously turning your heart away from God, Where you are is living in appalling, rebellious sin. And sin is always the object of God's wrath. Well, that's who we are. But thankfully, the Bible also remarkably teaches us this truth, that we are the objects of the immense and abundant love of God. I'm not going to be able to preach on this as long as I need to. 
I spent all that time with rebellious sinners because I think we have a hard time believing that. We've been in Christ so long we forget that. But so often we don't understand the love of God for us. I spent a lot of my early life believing that if I was good enough, maybe God would love me. But that's not true. What is true is because I am not good enough, God loves me so that I can be cleansed and be restored to what He created me to be. I am the object. You are the object of God's immense and abounding love. Don't ever forget it. I know what you're saying. You're saying, nah, you just don't know me. You don't know the things I've said and done. Sure, God loves people, but not people like me. You don't know me either. You don't know the things I've said and done and why I struggle with that too. My friends, God's love is not blind. God's not ignorant of everything you've said and done. And while you were still sinners, while you were enemies of God, while you were ungodly, Christ died for you and God demonstrated his love for you in sending Jesus Christ to die for your sins. We are the object of the amazing, abundant love of God. He does it not because of who we are. He does it because of who He is. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to His disciples, if you love those who love you, what makes that different? You different from anybody else. That's how they live. You be like your Father in heaven. How does He love? He sends His Son, the Son, upon the just and the unjust. He sends His rain upon the good and the wicked. Just in creation, you see how much God loves everyone, regardless of whether they deserve it. And on the cross, He demonstrated even more powerfully that He loves the world. So my friends, breathe the air. Eat your food. Look up into the sky and see the sun. Enjoy the rain. And listen and look to, at Jesus on the cross and know how much God loves you. But not only does he love you, who are you? You are an appalling, rebellious sinner that God abundantly loves. And as a result, he has made you his child and even more so. That's who we are. You know, I am overwhelmed by the number of passages that describe who we are. Trying to get a picture of our worldview, who we are, who does God say we are. I am convinced that if we would see ourselves as God sees us, we'd think about ourselves differently and we would act differently. And so at the end of this lesson, I'm just simply going to remind us what God says we are. At the end of this lesson, on the table in the back, I've got some pages, some, some printouts of these verses. If it helps you to take them home and put them on your refrigerator, do it. As I was working through how God views me, I made a list of the ways that God described me, and I put it in my office to remind myself of who I really am. And it was verses like this. Who are we? We are children of God. Behold, what manner of love hath the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. 
Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. We are holy and blameless. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? We are accepted by God. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. We are accepted by God. We are a friend of Jesus. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. We are not condemned by God. Now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I am a new creature in Christ There is no, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I, you, have been made righteous. Oops, I didn't leave it up there, did I? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Is that overwhelming? Do you see yourself like that? That's the worldview. Not even a, just a scrape of the worldview that God says you would have about yourself. That's how you're supposed to see yourself. That's who I am. That's who you are in Christ. No wonder the psalmist said the Lord takes delight in his people. He does. And so I want to close by asking what if we really did see ourselves like this? What difference would it make? tell you, make all the difference. First of all, we would make sure that we would glorify in God's ability and not our own. You see, as long as I am trying to define who I am by myself, I'm constantly trying to say how good I am. And I know I'm not. And if I am defining myself based upon you, I find that I am insufficient in there in all kinds of different ways. But what if I see myself as God sees me? Do I go around saying, boy, I'm great. I go around saying, isn't God good? God made me the appalling, rebellious sinner, all of those things. And all of a sudden, my inadequacy fades. Did you feel inadequate as we were reading those? I didn't. And all of a sudden, our feelings of arrogance disappear because we know the God who made us that. Psalm 70 and verse 4, May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Secondly, when we see ourselves as God sees us, we will have a new purpose for living life. 
we will live our life for the one who made us who we are. What a terrible thing, right? For children to experience all of the blessings of their parents and go out and act like their parents don't exist or even actually go off and live in ways that are contrary to the way their parents have taught them. But think about a God who loved us so deeply in Christ Jesus, who made us so wonderfully as we have just read if we were to go off and live like he didn't do that. But when you define, define yourself as the way that God defines you, well, this passage means a lot more. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. The love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, if one died for all, all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So that we, like the Apostle Paul, could say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Well, it's such an important lesson. I think it'll help us as we go out this next week to have the right view of ourselves. And I really am convinced that if we had see ourselves as God sees us, these inferiority issues we've got, these pride issues that we have, these hopelessness and meaningless feelings would go away. And we would see the joy that God intended for us to live in this whole world with. If you need to respond to the gospel, we'd love for you to do that this morning and come and have this rebirth of your spirit that he can make you cleansed and pure and all of your sins taken away. Just a down payment of what is ultimately going to come when the Lord Jesus returns. And if you need to do that this morning, this is the time to say, I believe in Jesus, what he has done for me to forgive me of my sins, and I want to be baptized into his name. And if you need to do that, please do. If you're a child of God and you've not been living the way that you ought to, and you know that that puts you as the object of God's wrath, we're here to help you and pray for you and respond in any way you need to as we stand and sing together.